Sometimes I would have an introduction. Sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I would have a story. Sometimes I wouldn't. And so it was just kind of all over the place as far as how I got into the text. I don't really think there's anything wrong with just diving right in. But I do think that there's something helpful about saying, here's why this matters, and kind of getting their attention right at the front end. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 189. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. And my guest this week, my conversation partner that you get to listen to, is uh, Nick Cady. Now, uh, Nick and I, along with some others, we're on the steering team of the Expositors Collective Ministries. Um, We're involved in planning the in-person training events, like the one that took place recently in Colorado, um, upcoming ones in California and beyond. Um, And also, we just really have a a shared love, not only of like the, the art and the science of of teaching and preaching, Christ-centered expository preaching, uh, we also just really want other people to grow and to improve and to get better at it. And this conversation, we we focus on like not just sermons in general, but the introductions to our messages. Um, why is it important that the first few things that come out of our mouths, the moment that we step behind the pulpit, actually matter a lot? Now, as you'll hear from this conversation, Nick and I are very different in our preparation process and personality types, but both of us agree that a well-crafted, compelling introduction is a gift that we give to our hearers and is a way to honor the main content of our messages. We work hard all week to prepare something worth saying, so let's make sure that we invite people in with a welcoming introduction. All right, I'm going to get out of your way. Here's my conversation with Nick Cady on how to write a compelling introduction. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and I'm with the the co-host, the occasional host, uh, Nick Cady. Nick, how are you? Doing great. Well, that's a good introduction, which pivots into the topic of our conversation. Uh, let's talk about introductions. Now, was that a good intro, Nick? Uh, I don't think it was the best intro we've had. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so we want to have just like a shorter, more focused conversation. So, you know, I'm not going to talk to you about the first sermon you ever preached or your weekly rhythm. Uh, people can find that in other interviews. But uh, let's maybe just get, yeah, straight straight to the point of like sermon introductions. What are they and, and why do they matter, Nick? Yeah, sermon introductions, I think, uh, matter more than than we give them credit for. I, I do know some very good preachers who, who by principle, don't do sermon introductions. And I, and I respect that, and I know why they do it. Um, I think there's something to be said for, open your Bible, and the first thing out of my mouth is going to be, this is the scripture that we're talking about, whether I, I read it and then pray. But even then, there, there is some sort of introduction. Even, even if somebody jumps right in, even after having read that verse, there has to be some sort of introduction to the topic. So I, I think it matters because it immediately tells people uh, right there at the beginning when you have their full attention at perhaps like no other time that you will, is to say, you know, is to kind of grab them by the collar, if you will, and say, hey, you, listen up, here's what I'm, here's why you should give me your attention for the next uh, bit of time. 
So, I mean, that's definitely, you know, there's different ways to do it. Um, I, I've gone through probably a evolution in my own preaching if I look back. Um, and to the point where now I'm very in, intentional about my introductions. I have kind of a, a way that I do them every week, whereas before it was very haphazard. Okay. And, uh, and now I've kind of developed a, a system. Yeah. Well, th- I'd love to hear about that in a, in a moment. Um, yeah. But when you talk about haphazard, man, that's, that's so much of my early preaching in general. And then especially my early approach to introductions, especially, uh, because in my mind, and maybe there's a lot of our hearers that think the same way. Um, you know, we're expository preachers. We're into like what the Bible says. And so we put all of our, our work and all of our, like our labor goes into like, what does this text say? And, uh, you know, we might even rightly so believe like, well, it's the text that's the most important part. My words about the text are, are, are certainly less important and they only serve to elevate the text itself. So introductions, not that important. Let's just get to verse one, uh, chapter one. Um, I used to think that. And I've come to see, maybe like yourself, that actually, in order to serve the text, we need to realize we're talking to people who are, you know, maybe scatterbrained is too much of a loaded phrase, but, you know, distracted and beset by many things. And they have a lot of things on their mind. And you have a chance to, as you said, grab them by the collar and help them to see that what we're going to look at in verse one is incredibly important to them and to their lives. Yeah. And uh, that's right. You know, I mean, it, uh, I fully agree that the text is actually what has the power to transform someone, right? By, by the power of God, the spirit of God. A- and yet someone could read that text on their own, right? That there's really, and, and to be fair, if we're talking for, let's say we talk for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, some people talk even longer, but most of the words they are saying are not from the Bible, right? So Ooh, yes, we yes. should be fair and say, okay, we're using a lot of our own words, as you said, to serve the text. Uh, and so we should be intentional with how we use them. Right. And so I remember, I, I, even just thinking about the topic of introductions, I remember, you know, years ago having my sermon notes uh, and it's like Sunday morning and I just am glancing down at them during like the last song of worship. And I had just like written in my sermon notes intro goes here and then straight into verse one. And then at the end, it's like, you know, a conclusion goes here. And so I was just making up every, you know, not, I shouldn't say every single one, but I, I do vividly remember glancing at during the last song and being like, oh, it's the last song. I haven't even made up my intro yet. Oh, that's fine. You know, and just kind of just get up front and just start talking about whatever like loose association comes to mind. And then from there, go to verse one. So my intros, sometimes not always, were just made up entirely on the spot. Wow. Every time you, you tell me these kinds of things, it like caused me to have anxiety, Mike. <laughs> when you're like, I finished my sermon notes um, at like 7 a.m. today or something like I'm like, oh my right. gosh, I'm having a small panic attack. Well, you and I are very different men, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so what are so you probably never did that in your life? I'm going to bet, but um, your current system is probably even more structured than your last system. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's really structured. It's just in, it's intentional about what I do. I, here's what I mean by that: it was haphazard in the past. Is that sometimes I would have an introduction, sometimes I wouldn't. Um, sometimes I would have a story, sometimes I wouldn't. And so it was just kind of all over the place as far as how I got into the text. I don't really think there's anything wrong with just diving right in, 
But uh-huh. I do think that there's something helpful about saying, um, here's why this matters and kind of getting their attention right at the front end. Uh, I think there's a, a lot of benefits to the, the way I've come around to doing it, which is that um, I was pretty influenced by a guy named Matthew Dix. Um, he is a storyteller. So there, it turns out, I didn't know this until recently. There's like this whole movement of like people who tell stories. They're kind of like stand-up comics who aren't funny, right? So that's, wow. I mean, a lot of their stories are heartwarming and touching, but he gave a lot of really important principles for stories that I guess I hadn't thought through. And um, one of the things that I try to do is now I've been trying to start every sermon with a story and that story is pretty short. It must serve the text and the whole point of what we're talking about. But I, I try as much as possible to find a story from my life. And um, that kind of leads into that topic. Just a few things that I learned from this guy, Matthew Dix. He has a book called Story Worthy, which I thought was really helpful. And actually, he consults with a lot of preachers, is what uh, I found. Okay. Um, so I read his book, found it, found it you know, very helpful. One of the things you know that happens is that by telling a story about yourself, you know, in most stories you tell, you really shouldn't be presenting yourself as the hero of the story. So what it does is it, it kind of um, puts you in a position of humility right at the front end, which is very endearing, which says, okay, I'm going to listen to this guy. It's very disarming. Now, I think that's pretty important as preachers because um, I think that there are people who come, you know, who, who want to hear the word, who, who are excited. They want to hear it from whoever's preaching that day. But then there are a lot of other people who come along uh, getting you know brought to church, their heart's not fully in it. And so by doing something that does endear them, uh, I think that you're, you're letting people hear you who wouldn't naturally hear you. So uh, I tell a story, try to uh, have a story yeah, that, so, that is so from my me, life. Let me but go interrupt. Ahead. Yeah. So are, are you saying you're trying to win people over? Are you trying to, to win the audience onto your side? Yeah, I guess a little bit. Wow. The, the other okay. part is that I think that my uh, church, this is something I've realized over the last couple of months, we've had a lot of new people joining our church and um, it helps them to hear something about my life. And, okay. you know, some people could say, well, why do they need to hear anything about your life? You know, they need to just hear about Jesus. Um, I just taught through 1 Corinthians 4, and in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, after kind of insulting the Corinthians, he has this thing which is called Paul's sarcastic rebuke there in 1 Mm -hmm. Corinthians 4. And then right after he rebukes them sarcastically, he says, now I want you to imitate me because I'm your father in the faith. And (laughs) I think that's really kind of funny, and it's also really interesting because I had someone come up to me afterwards and say, you know, it always struck me as a little bit arrogant on Paul's part that he would say, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. But as we got to talking about it, you know, just the reason he would do that is because, you know, it's one thing to know about what Jesus did, but then even through our sermons, we're trying to help people to live that out in the 21st century, in the place and time that they live. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I want, I guess, through showing them something from my life is showing them um, that exact thing, how this plays out. And it's usually a story of how I've failed. That's, this is something Matthew Dix always says, that a story isn't a story, or at least it's not a good story. 
unless there's some aspect of realization or transformation. Right? So basically, I did this. It wasn't great. Then I realized something else. Hmm. Hmm. So it's kind of a three-part story, a three-arc three, three arc, or three-chapter three story arc. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> maybe we'll edit that out. <laughs> or maybe I should just humbly embrace the fact that I couldn't think of the words uh, right, right on the time. So thank you for, yeah, for let, letting me interrupt in the first place and to, to ask about, yeah, the distinction between like, like um, preaching yourself as the hero versus allowing people to, to see what Christianity lived out in the 21st century Colorado uh, can look like. Um, but, but you were talking about, I think, Matthew Dick's method about, I think, was it called Storyworthy or how are you gathering these stories about yourself? Sometimes, sometimes Nick, the perfect story just comes to mind mm. and oftentimes it doesn't. I'm like, has this happened in my life? No, it hasn't. And then just quickly, I just try to think of something else. How do you kind of mine your own life or your own story to find these connecting introductory stories? Yeah. So I use a process that he has talked about. Um, so if you, if you Google Matthew Dix or go on YouTube, he has a talk about what's called homework for life. So basically what he does is every day he, he has a spreadsheet. I do it in a notebook, but, um, I, I just write down a sentence from the day. What did, what happened to me that day that was worth telling a story about? So it's not just like a journal. It's if I was going to tell a story about today, um, and what happened to me, here's the story that I would tell. And not all of those are really story worthy, to be honest. Um, but every now and then there, there is something and just the practice of doing it. I think it also helps makes my, uh, it helps me like recall my life, you know, like here's what I did on these days, uh, that was meaningful, that was worth remembering. And here's maybe a little, a little lesson that I took away from that. And what you do is that you just get in the process of thinking in that way through this mm -hmm, practice. Mm -hmm. And that, that helps you. Uh, you know, what's funny is that since I've done this, I've realized that I had a lot more stories to tell than I previously thought I did. Yeah. And so then you have it in a, in a notebook, uh, out of curiosity, what brand notebook is it? <laughs> it's a field notes notebook. I got my first field notes notebook from you, Mike. Wow, that's great. Yeah, we're, we're big on stationary here at this at this podcast. But um, so you put it in there, but then and then do you catalog it? Do you have like sticky notes that say like, you know, lessons about repentance, lessons about humility, lessons about pride? I don't. That sounds like a great system, but it'd probably be oh, hard actually, to do in the actually, <laughs> I started a beast because you probably do, will do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I don't have a system like that, but I do enjoy going back through my notes and saying, okay, hey, oh, yeah you know, recalling the things that I went through and what I learned during those things. Is that okay? Okay. Well, um, yeah, I was telling you before we, we hit record that um, just a few days ago at my own church with some kind of lay preachers, I did like a, a expository preaching workshop and it was, you know, three sessions, four hours. It was, it was pretty intense. Um, and we spoke about the importance and the value of, of introductions and, uh, yeah, I, I was talking to them about how the introduction to a sermon is almost like the conductor to a train. And, you know, kind of in the more old-fashioned trains, or at least the ones we've seen in films, like the conductor of the train, you know, kind of leans out of the front engine and, you know, would say, hey, this train is going to Dublin, you know. We're going to stop in Maynooth. We're going to stop in Kilkenny. We're going to Dublin. All aboard. And then people get on the train. And then off it goes. And... 
I was saying how I've come to understand that the an introduction is is sort of like that that you're going to to say either explicitly or you're going to prepare the stage for that final destination. You know, mm-hmm. we are going to Dublin, and if you want to come, then come on in. And I was yeah saying that a, a lot of times newer Bible teachers, myself included, when this was all new to me, um, hardly gave any thoughts to the introduction at all because of course it's it's just God's word let's just dive straight into it. But it gives, it, it prepares people to join in on the process or to even, even be knowing what to be looking for or listening for as you begin the message. Mm. Um, so, so I think it's kind of valuable. Of course, it's possible for somebody to hop on a train as it's moving. You know, we, we've all seen those cowboy movies as well. You know, mm-hmm. you can get on a horse and you could, you could leap onto the train and, and you can kind of join in halfway. But most of the people you have a few seconds at the beginning to kind of grab their attention and bring them along. And you don't want to squander that. You do want to say, listen, we're going to talk about how, you know, this is my introduction from last Sunday. Um, and, and, and let me pause and say this. I learned a lot from Jonathan Pennington. He had a great book called uh, Small Preaching. He was a, a guest on this show recently. We, we spoke about this on the episode, so we'll link it in the show notes. But he spoke about how the first minute of your sermon matters so much uh, because, and of course there's committed people in your church and they're going to listen to you no matter what, but we would hope that they're bringing their friends or that the people that aren't core disciples and they're sussing you up and they're deciding whether they're going to listen or not. Mm -hmm. And so you want to, in your first minute, don't waste time. Uh, Don't say, you know, if funny thing happened to me on the way to church this morning or this, you know, these random little quips, he's like, immediately get to the point. <laughs> and I've been really putting that into practice lately. And so I walked up to the pulpit, said, hi, my name is Mike. You know what? Sometimes a doctor has to hurt you in order to make you better. Sometimes a therapist needs to make you cry in order to make you whole. Sometimes a personal trainer needs to make you hurt before you can be healthy. And sometimes Jesus takes you backwards before he takes you forwards. Mm. We're going to see that in John chapter 21 with Peter. And then boom, everyone knows, and then they, they dial it in. So I've, I've really even improved, I think even recently, through these conversations that I get to have in the podcast of realizing I'm wasting valuable seconds, and I just want to get straight into it. Yeah, I know that's really good. Uh, I do that too. Immediately as my prayer ends, I jump straight into the story that I'm going to tell. I don't make it overly long, but I I think the other thing that I've noticed that Matthew Dix also points out and something that um, even if I just think back on sermons that I remember, oftentimes the things that I remember most about a sermon are the, the illustrations and the stories. Now, I think that's just part of human nature. It's not because I like stories more than I like the Bible. It's just that, you know, if you look at Jesus too, he tells some stories that have, I mean, they, they've worked their way into the, the modern mind, right? We just, mm-hmm. they're part of our culture. Yeah. The um, prodigal son. The prodigal the, son. Yeah. 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 So we have all these stories and these are the things that we really remember that stick with us. And I think that this has been the case as I've seen in our church. Uh, People are kind of on the edge of their seat to find out what is the story that I'm going to tell this week. And Mm, then mm. they talk to me about it later and I hear people talking about it. Right. And so my point is that because that's the case, never tell a story just for the sake of telling a story. Like if, if I didn't have a good story to tell, I, I honestly, I wouldn't force it. I would just jump into the the issue that, that we're going to be talking about today in the text. Yeah. And um, 
but but I am looking for a story just because I know the power of it. Yeah, yeah. And like, I think by nature, you are a good storyteller, Nick. And in fact, you know, we've been in groups when I've even been like, hey, hey, Nick, tell them the story about this, you know, because not only are you a good storyteller, there's there's memorable stories and you and you and you tell them well, so much so that I, I treat you like Spotify. And I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I choose I choose this story. Uh, um, so so you're, I think, by nature, a good storyteller. But it seems like that Matthew Dix or this, this philosophy has helped you to improve um, are, are there, are there tips? How can people get better at telling stories and then either using them at the beginning of their sermon or in the middle, but how, how can our, our storytelling improve? Yeah. Just a few tips that, I, that really stuck out to me from Matthew Dix. He said, number one, start with movement, right? Because if you look at all the great stories that we love to tell, like Star Wars and, and all that, it doesn't just start out by, you know, telling you who all the characters are and what they're going to do. Mm. Like Darth Vader's mm. a bad guy. Princess Leia is a good guy. This is what's <laughs> happening. Uh, no, it's just like, there's a spaceship coming and it's like shooting at another spaceship. So he says, just jump right into the movement. And he said, yeah, using words that include movement, you know, I was on a train doing this, right? There's movement or the train was rolling forward in this way. So he said, do that because people, People hate the pre-ramble that comes before stories. Just jump into the story. He said, the other thing is that use the element of surprise. I mean, this is why uh, comedians are funny, right? It's, it's that element of surprise. And if you look at comedians, the best comedians are actually storytellers. And so um, his point is, don't blow that element of surprise, right? Don't give away what's going to happen. And don't uh, also don't like hype it like, hey, this is going to be really good or listen for this next part. He just says, hey, just tell the story and let people be surprised and kind of, you know, keep your cards close to your chest. And then there's the big reveal at the end, which um, which catches their attention. But it needs to serve its purpose. Again, he says a story isn't only a story uh, that's worth telling if there's a moment of realization or transformation. And, and, you know, just on that thought and, you know, thinking about telling stories about myself or telling stories about somebody else, I think this is a really good point uh, is that in his letter to the Philippians, Paul says this, you know, I want to see your joy and your progress in the faith. And I think that's, that's another aspect, just going back to the idea of why do people need to hear stories about me? Well, they don't. But if I'm going to tell a story, um, again, I don't want to pose myself as the hero. Jesus needs to be the hero of the sermon. And yet, I think what people need to see in ministers and those who, who stand up to teach them about the gospel and, and to talk about how it's lived out um, is they need to see progress. They need to see progress in our lives and they need to understand what progress in their faith looks like. Right, right. Yeah, and, and what does Paul say? To, is it 2 Corinthians chapter four? You know, we, we, don't, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ and ourselves, your servants for Christ's sake. Mm-hmm. So there is, obviously we're preaching the glories of Christ, but yet also we're communicating that who we are and we're, we want to serve you. And maybe we serve people by let, letting them in on our lives or showing them what a Christian life looks like. Yeah, I mean, so much, you know, like with Paul in Philippians chapter one there, where he says, um, you know, considering everything that's happened to him, then he says, I'm convinced that all of these things have taken place for the furtherance of the gospel. Just that sentence alone, you know, is not just him talking about Jesus. It's talking about something that's happened within him that has changed the way he thinks. And that itself 
is a very, I mean, that's something we look back on. We always talk about it. Look at Paul there in prison rather than bemoaning his situation. He's, he's walking in faith. That's what it looks like. And so we want to have those kind of moments as well. Well, excellent. Hey, do you ever do the thing, Nick? And I've heard some, some preachers do this. I think, I think real kind of master homileticians do this, um, where they begin and they begin by telling a story Maybe it's about their lives, but they have this really gripping story. They almost come to the climax, and then they and then they say, "And I'm going to tell you the rest in a few minutes' time." And then they get into the message, and then you know, and they they do their verses and this and that, and then they say, "And now remember that story about the football? Well, here's how it ends." And then they they conclude the story. Do you ever do that? I, I I've done it a few times, and when I've done it, oh man, it's so powerful. And I had this, and it's really hard though. Like I said, I don't like to force these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had one for Good Friday. And uh, here, here was, the, I'll make it real brief. I was skiing with a friend of mine and I had taken the day, it was usually the day that I spend with my wife. And I was supposed to be hanging out with my wife, but instead I ditched my wife and I went skiing with this friend of mine. And he was asking me in the parking lot, he's like, why do you look so down? I'm like, um, yeah, because I know that I did the wrong thing. Like I should have prioritized my wife over you and you. myself. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was like, oh, well, you got to buy her some chocolate or something. I'm like, no, you don't understand. My wife hates chocolate. Like she might even have an allergy to it. She thinks she does. I'm not 100% sure she does, but she claims that she does and she hates chocolate. So I can't get her chocolate. And he goes, oh, well, then what are you going to – you should get her some flowers. I said, okay, first of all, um, with the flowers, she doesn't like to be bought off, right? That would just make her more angry. But you know what she hates even more than being bought off is flowers because she feels like when you give somebody cut flowers, it's essentially like saying, you know, hey, here's something beautiful that I found and then I killed it. And now you get to watch it wither and die on your counter, right? For the next several days. How discouraging and disappointing. And then I, I stopped the story right there. And I didn't tell people that I was stopping the story. And then I just talked about how the, the story of Jesus dying on Good Friday is, can be seen like cut flowers. Here's the most beautiful person who ever lived. And he's cut down in the youth of his life. How is this a good story? Then I go on, I explain the gospel, and at the very end, I told the end of the story, which was this big aha moment that I had. I actually wrote it in my notebook. This was one of my first forays <laughs> into this. And here's what it was. He said, well, then what, what would make your wife happy? And I said, well, honestly, the thing that she loves most is spending time with me, and that's why it's such a bad thing that I did by coming out here. And he told me, he goes, hey your wife must really love you. If the number one thing in her life, if she loves spending time with you more than she loves chocolate and flowers, then that means she really loves you. You better notice that, is what this friend of mine told me. He doesn't usually talk to me that way, but he did. And, and I was like, oh my gosh. And then I took that, st- I told that part of the story and said, don't you see, this is what God has done for you in Christ. This is the proof that he really loves you. He, the greatest thing for him is not what you do for him to buy him off. It is that he wants to be with you. He really loves you. And that's proven on the cross. So that was the way I did it. I I really loved that. I wish I had something like that every week and I don't, but uh, have you ever done it, Mike? Like, like once or twice. And yeah, it's really good, but it's really hard. It, it, It takes, you have to have like, 
everything has to be planned out in advance. And as you kind of mentioned, I'm not much of a planner. <laughs> um, I'm kind of, you know, um, but, but yeah, it's, it, it's worth it. It doesn't come easy. Maybe some of the listeners, um, they do it every week and, uh, maybe, maybe they should be telling us what to do, but, uh, but yeah, but Nick, Hey, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for kind of letting us into the process. And, um, hopefully like if we've just inspired, you know, one or two preachers to put a little bit more thought into their introduction, um, it's it's a way of, I believe, yeah, serving the the people who come to your Bible study or your women's study or the the youth group. Like, you serve them well by making it easier rather than harder to listen to the real stuff, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, the real meat. You make it easier by preparing it well and presenting it well with a well crafted introduction. Well, hey, thank you so much, Nick, once again. It's always a privilege and a pleasure to be able to speak with you about anything, really, but particularly about the nuts and bolts of preaching. So thanks for walking us through maybe some ways for us to improve as storytellers and communicators and introduction writers. So you've just heard, um, you know, a conversation about the, the first things that we should say once we step into the pulpit. Next week, we have kind of a different episode. It's different than anything I've ever done before. It's kind of a a compilation or like documentary style episode, not talking about the first few moments of a sermon as we deliver it from the pulpit, but the first few moments of Sunday morning before we leave the house. So I've been able to go back to some of my favorite guests that have been on the show over the past three years and ask them about their early morning routine or what they do before breakfast time. What do they do to prepare their soul for what's going to be a long day of public ministry and individual care of members of the congregation? So I have got samples and glimpses into the private routine of previous guests like Ray Ortland and Mark Smith and Connor Berry and Adam Narciso and and a few more. And guys, it's going to be such a great episode because I love kind of the variety of preachers that we've had on the show over these past 189 episodes. Uh, People from a more uh, conservative or a more Pentecostal background and seeing how like this shared love for the the word of God and the God of the word um, works its way out in our teaching and preaching ministries. And guys, I believe that we can learn from each other. And so here I'm going to leave you with a, a little preview for the next episode. Uh, this is uh, one of our Lutheran guests. Uh, Pastor Bob Hiller, and he's going to speak about what he does to prepare his soul on a Sunday morning. And make sure you're subscribed so that you could hear what the other guys do as well. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective help you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's Word. Here is Bob Hiller. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Bob Hiller from Community Lutheran Church in Escondido in San Marcos, California, and the content editor for Craft of Preaching over at 
Mike.org. Mike has asked me to tell you a little bit about my Sunday morning routine, the preparations I go through uh, before actually getting into the pulpit on Sunday morning. I actually get up and, and leave the house right away. I, I wake up at about 10 to 6. This is what I've done literally for 14 years. I get up at about 10 to 6, make myself, uh, cut myself an apple, have a little bit of salami and cheese, and then I head out the door. And I actually used to not eat breakfast, as interesting as this might be for some of you. I used to think, no, I'm going to do it without any food in my system, and then I would just feel awful and tired and, and out of energy halfway through the morning. And so my dad, who's a very wise pastor, said, no, you, you got to eat something. It doesn't have to be a lot, uh, but make sure you have yourself some decent kind of breakfast. So that's that's what I do. And then uh, when I get to the church, I have time in prayer. I have a list of my brother pra- uh, pastors that I pray for who are going to be preaching that morning. Uh, then I pray through Luther's morning prayer. If you've never seen that, it's a wonderful little prayer uh, to pray before you get into the pulpit. You can probably find it online somewhere. Uh, And then I preach through my sermon. This will be the third time I've preached through the sermon out loud. I do it on Saturdays uh, twice out loud. The manuscript is always done by Thursdays. Uh, On Saturday when I practice the sermon, I make tweaks if I don't like the way the structure is, if I think uh, some points need to be said in different places. I make those adjustments usually on Saturday. And then on Sunday morning, I've said it out loud to myself twice. This will be the third time I do it on Sunday morning before I actually get up uh, to preach it. So uh, that's the routine. And then you get out and you you start greeting the people and welcoming them to church so that they uh, get to see your face and you get to see their faces and you're prepared uh, to worship the Lord together. But that is what my preparation is like. I don't see my family before I leave. Uh, I don't spend a whole lot of time with them until afterwards. But that's usually how it goes. So I hope this is helpful and you can get some insight from it. God's peace be with you.